Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Caitlin Wang. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. This week's show is a special edition of BT8, presented by the CSW 65 delegation of the Young Diplomats of Canada. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter, at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. The Commission on the Status of Women meets for an annual two-week session to discuss gender equality outcomes, evaluate progress, and negotiate agreed conclusions on future directives. This year's theme was women's full and effective participation and decision-making in public life, as well as the elimination of violence for achieving gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls. Equal representation at all levels of leadership has yet to be attained, as there are many areas such as the private sector, government, and diplomacy where women and gender minorities remain underrepresented. Today, you'll hear from a few incredible women leaders who have significantly contributed to advancing gender equality through their courage, advocacy, and lifetime of work. But first, please allow me to introduce you to our delegates. Serving as the CSW 65 Delegation's head delegate is Catherine Lacroix. Hello, my name is Catherine Carcer Lacroix, and I was head delegate to CSW 65 this year. I am currently a McEwen Scholar at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where I'm studying for a Master's of Arts in Art History. Uh, and I'm interested in the representation of women in history, uh, particularly in, in French art or broader art of the Francophonie as a native Montrealer. I also work with the student organizations in Scotland that uh, advocate against domestic violence, uh, as well as seek to empower at-risk youth to pursue university studies. Thank you, Catherine. Serving as our engagement coordinator is Niku Salamat. Hello, my name is Niku Salamat, and I'm this delegation's engagement coordinator. I work as a research officer at the Global Network of Women Peacebuilders, which is a coalition of over 100 women's rights and peacebuilding organizations from around the world working to advance the women peace and security agenda, the youth peace and security agenda, and gender equality and humanitarian action. I'm also currently a law student at the University of Toronto. Thanks, Niku. And as mentioned, I will be your host as this year's communications coordinator. My name is Caitlin Wang, and I'm an incoming third year at the University of Toronto studying pathobiology and global health. I currently serve as the executive director of LIGHT, a grassroots youth-led organization based in the GTA that focuses on capacity building, youth empowerment, and advocacy. In response to COVID-19, I co-founded Young on Herons United, a provincial research initiative to assess the impacts of the pandemic on youth and in turn make policy recommendations to governments, organizations, and individuals in order to realize a youth-informed, equitable recovery. In fact, you can find our published report on our findings at www.youngontariansunited.org. To start, we'd like to take you to the UN Secretary General Town Hall Meeting with Civil Society, an annual CSW side event. Of course, held virtually this year, Secretary General Antonio Guterres discussed the effect of the pandemic on women and girls, acknowledged the necessity of civil society, and made five recommendations for leaders in all sectors. Friends, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It is a great pleasure to join you today. And my priority is not to answer questions, it's to listen 
to hear your opinions, to hear your suggestions, and of course uh, to be able to incorporate them in our own thinking and policies. But first, please allow me to say a few words about the past year and what it has meant for progress on women's rights and gender equality. We are seeing new evidence almost every day that the social and economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating for women's rights, and particularly the rights of the most vulnerable and marginalized, poor women, women working in the informal economy, indigenous women. According to the World Bank, women in Latin America and the Caribbean were 44% more likely than men to lose their jobs at the onset of the crisis. UNICEF reported last week that up to 10 million more girls are at risk of becoming child brides as a result of the pandemic. And gender-based violence was an emergency even before the COVID. In the past year, as many women have been trapped uh, at home with their abusers and others have been subjected to online abuse and harassment, it has become a shadow pandemic that will continue well after COVID is over. School closures and overburdened elder and health care services have laid bare the hidden costs of the care economy on women and the inequalities these perpetuates. An estimated 12 million women were unable to access sexual and reproductive health services as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, with disruption of supplies and services lasting an average of three and a half months. Despite these serious setbacks to gender equality and women's rights, there is a huge gender gap in the task forces and panels that are supposed to be building the recovery. And there is simply no excuse for these. Male-dominated teams will come up with male-dominated solutions. We cannot go back to the failed man-made policies that have resulted in the fragility we see around us, in healthcare systems, in social protection, in access to justice, and in the well-being of our planet. We need to take the opportunity of a reset based on the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development to ensure that everyone enjoys the right of life, dignity and security on a healthy planet. And we need to localize the Sustainable Development Goals working with you, our civil society partners, to deliver real change on the ground. The Spotlight Initiative to eliminate all forms of violence against women and girls can also provide a new model for such partnerships with both national governments and the civil society. And civil society is involved in its design, implementation, monitoring and decision-making at all levels. Gender equality is a question of power. We still live in a male-dominated world with a male-dominated culture. And if we, a few human lead, women leaders are not enough. It is when we have many women in power that we can transform power itself. I'm calling on leaders in all sectors to step up and take five transformative actions to build women's representation, participation and leadership. First, realize women's equal rights by repealing all discriminatory laws and enacting positive measures. Second, take concrete steps, including special measures like quotas, so that women have equal representation everywhere, on company boards, in the media, at academic institutions, and in parliaments and governments. Third, support women's economic inclusion by enabling them to join and remain in the workforce in decent jobs with equal pay and a living wage. Protect their jobs in both the formal and informal sectors, 
give them equal access to credit and invest in the care economy and social protection. Fourth, I'm calling on all countries to address violence against women and girls through emergency plans backed by funding, policies, and political will. And fifth, make space for the inter intergenerational transition that is underway. Seek out and support the young women leaders who are advocating everywhere for a more just and equal world. And that's it. The floor is yours. Now, we speak to Senator Mary Lou McFedrin, who is a lawyer and educator who specialized in teaching and developing systemic and sustainable change mechanisms to promote equality and diversity, having co-founded several internationally recognized non-profit Canadian organizations, such as LEAF, the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, METRAC, the Metropolitan Action Committee on Violence Against Women and Children, and the Gernstein Crisis Center for Homeless Discharged Psychiatric Patients. Thank you very much. I had, I'm very much involved at Douglas Mental Health Hospital and Research Institute in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because they have some world leading research really for, for mental health. And there's still a very small PR presence, social media presence, philanthropic presence. And that's what we're working on developing right now. And I saw that you founded the Gerstein Crisis Center for Homeless Discharged Psychiatric Patients. And so to me, that constitutes really the intersection of two very vulnerable populations to us, at least. So we have women and women who suffer from acute mental health issues, I think, beyond what we see today being mainstreamed, which is really maybe bouts of depression and work-related anxiety. But I think that society has yet to tap into exclusion, I think, in, in graver terms, if I may. And so that's what I'm interested in, in thinking about right now was as we think about who's included and excluded from certain narratives and what we understand and what we don't and what we still discriminate against. And so I was wondering how you think we can move beyond maybe what we would consider today to be great, but still surface level advocacy towards type of advocacy that will seek to truly protect our most vulnerable populations. And I guess a follow up to that would be how do you see this with regards to your legal expertise? Do you think that it's a question of watching society evolve around the law and watching the interplay? Do you think it's something that we can push legally to then have it be accepted socially? I know that these, this we could write a book about this, but that was uh, maybe she could give us a blurb on that. I would really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, it's a, it's a great question to start. Let me situate my answer in a CSW context. And that is that the theme this year, the primary theme this year, as you all know, is leadership. So this is particularly appropriate for the young, those of you on the Young Diplomats delegation. And of course, by having that theme, we can delve into areas of leadership, themes of leadership, as well as capacity building and other aspects of leadership, women's style of leadership or women's content of leadership. But I think to Catherine's question, in a Canadian context, I have little doubt that the single most effective advocacy for young leaders to engage in right now is guaranteed livable income, without a doubt. And to address the practical question, on one hand, we want to bring a human rights lens. We want to and we must, in terms of the rules of the parliament in Canada, we must bring gender-based analysis plus to any new legislation, 
including our budget. And so when we do that, what emerges, of course, is a by far the highest percentage of Canadians struck the hardest by COVID are women. Name any category are women. Frontline health workers, 80% are women. As soon as you bring this human rights, gender-based analysis lens, all of this emerges very clearly, which arguably makes guaranteed little income also very much a women's issue. And that is in no way to diminish other groups that are very much in need of guaranteed livable income. But if you look within those groups, for example, people living with disabilities in Canada, you also get a very high proportion of people living with disabilities who are women. So the numbers tell us that for those of us who are privileged, for those of us who are women in a range of leadership roles, if we actually want to walk our talk, we have to risk stepping forward on very specific programming changes and legal changes. Now, if we take this into the wider CSW context, then what we know is that the Commission on the Status of Women, and if you'll forgive me, I kind of, I, I, I guess because A, I've been doing it for a long time, and B, because I really truly believe that historical context helps, I want to just take a moment and talk to you about the mechanism, about the Commission on the Status of Women. So when the United Nations was founded, and one of the things that COVID did was, was take us away from the kind of focused celebration of 75 years of the United Nations, which was 2020. But when it was founded, there was only one woman in San Francisco at the founding meeting of approximately 50 country representatives. There was only one woman in a clear leadership role, and that was Eleanor Roosevelt. And that was largely because President Roosevelt died just months before the UN founding meeting in San Francisco. And it was also a long time interest of hers, but it was, it was a speech, for example, the Four Freedoms speech by President Roosevelt, which you can still hear, you can still get a recording of it when he gave it on the radio. And there were women though, who have largely been written out of history, who were there, they were in San Francisco including a number of Canadian women. And many of those women were peace activists. If you think about the context, 1945, post-World War II, all of the information about the Holocaust still wasn't even known fully at that point. So if you can imagine you're a woman without the status and title, and you deeply believe that women's lives are different from men's lives. They don't have to be valued greater or lesser, although typically they are valued as lesser, but it's the difference. It's understanding that one size does not fit all. These women put forward a proposal right then and there at the founding of the UN to have a commission on the status of women, to have gender-based analysis. They didn't call it that then, but that's what they were talking about. 
And they weren't able to convince Eleanor Roosevelt to be a spokesperson for them. And so it didn't happen at the founding. And it really, for, for it to get up and running, it didn't actually happen for a couple of decades. It didn't actually happen until it became crystal clear that so-called gender neutral or, you know, we're, we're blind, we don't see any differences, that it doesn't work. And the UN had to actually officially change its position and activate the Commission on the Status of Women. So that's why we're involved now with CSW 65, but the United Nations is 75 years old. So to the question about, I think I've answered that really in a Canadian context, but in a CSW context around leadership, around those who are least advantaged, I would say that the biggest learning opportunity that any delegate has to CSW, to NGO CSW, to all of the parallel events that are happening on that, on that side, uh, scattered all around New York, but in this case, all happening online this year, is to listen. The information that is being brought from different countries, from the front lines, from women many of whom are participating in CSW at genuine risk to their well-being, genuine risk sometimes to their families. A price gets paid by many women who make the decision that they're actually going to step forward and be identifiable in a UN context. This is something that a, a lot of people don't really understand. It's also the place, the smart bureaucrats that I've known over the years, they pay attention to what's happening on the NGO CSW agenda because you can gather information about what's happening in countries long before it starts to hit the press, for example. These are the, some of the earliest sharing of information experiences that you can have that gathering of information. I mean, in the early days, 20 years ago, I used to take an empty suitcase with me to any CSW, actually to any of the UN meetings, but particularly CSW. And I would roll it around and just throw all these sources and publications because the online wasn't as much of an issue in those earlier days. Now, it's almost all online. You probably already know this, but on the NGO CSW side, the platform that they purchased and they built is customized for NGO CSW, allowed for 25,000 participants. And when we had our panel on Tuesday, they had surpassed 25,000, which was, we didn't know that. And some of our speakers actually had trouble getting registered. And, you know, we had to really scramble in order to, we did make it work ultimately, but it was right up to the last moment. So what does that tell us? The largest CSW gathering I've ever been at, and I've been at almost all of them for 20 years, had 8,000 delegates physically present in New York City. And now we're working with 25,000 plus. I think what it, what it tells us is that we need to be integrating online with in-person. We need to be building it in long-term 
as how we do business, not only as a, an emergency response, if you will, because the potential of linking 25,000 plus and the fact that there are only thousands of possible to get to New York has to do with resources. And so if, if we are thinking, and I don't mean this only about CSW, but the way in which we can strengthen networking and for those of us lucky enough to physically get to New York when it is possible to do that, great. But let's not go back only to that because the potential for expanding knowledge and leadership and building capacity using online technology is actually quite mind-boggling. The, the potential is huge and we need to work on that potential. And I would say further that it's young leaders like yourselves that need to be leading on this. You are, it's like the air you breathe, you're global citizens. For my generation, that is an acquired or a learned understanding. But it's not for your generation. For your generation, it's natural. It's who you are. And so the way in which you can expand on planning, on innovating, this is going to come much more naturally to you. I would venture to say this one's yours. It's very important to pick this up and, and carry this as leaders. Thank you so much, Senator. I really enjoyed that fantastic overview of the history of CSW. And also, I really appreciate all your work ensuring that youth actually have access to spaces like this. It's actually really funny that you brought that up because that was kind of one of the questions we were going to ask you. So I think you already touched upon this, but kind of to further that part of the conversation, something that we really appreciate about your work is the fact that you do amplify youth voices and you do focus on empowering youth to be able to make change, whether it is abroad internationally or even within their own communities. So given your experience working with youth, how can youth be more effective in terms of their collaboration with parliamentarians, policymakers, or adults in general, whether they are allies or not? Just before I joined you, I was on a call with the largest national organization, Federation of Francophone Young Leaders. And we were talking about my bill that's in the Senate to lower the federal voting age to 16. And they have a very long-standing leadership on this issue. And they're very strongly supportive. And I was saying to them, this will always be a priority for me. I truly believe that in the next five years, it is possible for us to lower the federal voting age to 16. It will help to revitalize our democracy and it will not happen if there isn't a national campaign of young leaders who are claiming this and owning this and working for it. I'm just a relatively small part of that because I can bring to the campaign the actual bill. And if we don't make it this time because of an early election being called, no problem. I'm coming right back in at the next possible moment and I'm tabling the bill again. So for as long as I'm in the Senate, um, youth leaders are going to be able to rely on a bill always being there. So I'm saying in this amount of detail about what's happening with the Vote 16 bill, because I really think that this in part answers your question, Caitlin. I think that one of the 
biggest seductions that occurs that I see all of us falling for, but sometimes I think maybe for younger leaders, it, it happens maybe a little more often. And that is that we have to understand that the largely patriarchal notion of the heroic leader, the singular, often militaristic in style, if not in content, that doesn't work for us. And I think you can see this very often in the beginning or the startups on very important issues. It's often because the media just prefers, frankly, easily quotable, consistent imaging. And, and I understand that. But what you've asked me about is effectiveness in making change and working with the parliamentary system, within the parliamentary system. And, and to that, I would say politicians, whether they're senators or they're members of parliament, listen to coalitions. They listen to federations. They listen to groups. The question that staff will always be asking is, who else is here? So-and-so signed the letter. Who do they have behind them? And so that's why, for me, the Vote 16, both the bill and the national campaign, which needs to be led by youth and needs to go well beyond any particular parliamentary session, it's a long game. And the, the whole practice of not only thinking about your own leadership positioning and opportunities, but looking behind you, who's coming up? Who can I support? I really appreciate your advice and your feedback. I think the recommendations to build networks in order to advocate is particularly valuable and really important. And I'm starting to see that in my own work as we start building those networks. And we're realizing that in turn, parliamentarians are starting to listen because we have all these individuals coming together to form coalitions. So that's really wonderful. I also just wanted to say thank you so much, Senator, for sharing all of your insights. I've really enjoyed hearing what you've had to say, and I think I'll be definitely reflecting on this conversation and will be sharing this with my own youth spheres to empower their work as well. Thank you, Caitlin. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate the chance to be with each and every one of you for this discussion. That was Senator McFedrin speaking about the historical context of the Commission on the Status of Women, the importance of listening to learn, and how youth may be more effective change makers. Next, we have our conversation with Ambassador Louise Blais with comments and transitions from Catherine. I'll let Catherine take it away. Hello, I'm Catherine Lacroix, and I was YDC's head delegate to CSW65 this year. I'm very excited to be taking you through what was our first bilateral meeting as a delegation with Ambassador Louise Blais, former Deputy Permanent Representative to Canada's mission to the United Nations. We were very glad to secure this time with Ambassador Blais because it was one of the last interviews she gave before she left her post in New York. Indeed, just this past April, she's announced that she'll be taking her career somewhere new, and we wish her the best in these endeavors. We began discussing Ambassador Blais's illustrious career through different postings in Global Affairs Canada, and ultimately her time at the mission. But through this, we were discussing a topic that Ambassador Blais knows to be unique and its ability to bring people together and bind us to our common humanity. That's the topic of mental health. Here's what Ambassador Blair has to say about stigma and breaking it. 
pursuing a fulfilling career, and ultimately leading a more fulfilling life. Thank you very much. Um, maybe we can we can start it off right away. I know that we wanted to ask you many, many questions on policy, on your own career, on your own approach at the mission. One thing that we wanted to start to speak about was something that's become a lot more discussed in the professional realms recently, which is mental health. And in, in April last year, you gave a very candid and a very relatable interview about your own burnout and your struggles with mental health. And we were wondering, well, I guess in three parts, how did this shape your career as it is today? What do you think the concrete initiatives that need to be taken in the workplace to make it more healthy and inclusive are? And then finally, um, if you see yourself taking this advocacy further in your career, and if so, if so, how? Well, thank you. Well, it's a great, it's a great way to start the conversation. It's interesting because that's often how I end the conversation because whenever I speak, I always carve out a time, well, not always, but most often, I carve out a time at the end of my presentation that could be about anything on this issue. And I find it so interesting that often this is what people gravitate to. And that's where I get the most questions asked. And, and to me, it, it, it just goes to show that there's so many of us that do struggle with varying degrees of either emotional issues or, or straight out mental conditions or illnesses. And there's still a stigma, unfortunately, in addressing that. And I, I, the reason why I talk about, about my own experience is, one, to address the stigma, to say, look, <laughs> you can have this, you could be open about it and still be named ambassador at probably the most important ambassador job that you can have, which is the UN. So it's not something that will stop you and your track in your career anymore. And quite the opposite, being more self-aware, applying more self-care can then lead to a much more fulfilling life and, and more fulfilling career. And this is, everybody's different. Everyone has a different passage if they do have a run-in with a mental health issue. Ambassador Blair and another Canadian diplomat you'll meet later, Julian Sturck, actually converged on what they thought the key to success in their diplomatic careers was. And that's the importance of leadership in one's own authentic voice. Here's what Ambassador Blair has to say on the question. Mine was triggered very much with my woman condition in the sense that throughout my whole entire career, I drove myself so hard and I, I pushed myself and and. And I thought that in order to succeed, I, I needed to espouse certain attributes that would lead me to success. And I didn't realize that I had absorbed a lot of male competitive attributes and, and I made my way. I went all the way up uh, the ladder. They served me well. But at some point, subconsciously, especially when I, once I became a leader or supervisor or a manager, how I manage staff really created a level of friction and dialect inside myself that I didn't see. And the first thing that happened was I ended up with a lot of stressful physical symptoms, basically name it, I had it. And then finally it, it culminated in the full sort of nervous breakdown because the physical signs were signs that something was wrong. And I, I could not admit that it could be emotive or mental, I kept looking for the, 
the, the problem in the physical self, when in fact it was just a manifestation of something happening somewhere else. So I spent two years going down those rabbit holes until finally I crashed. And in the process of healing, I sought a lot of help and I discovered that one of the factors that led me to, to that unraveling was the fact that I was, I was not myself. I was not my authentic self. I had repressed my normal attributes, which is to be caring, loving, inclusive, encouraging, forgiving. And I had taken on the hard edge and driven and results first kind of mentality. And so once I, I got better, I went back to the office with now the new me, which was the real me, basically. And I had gone through such a deep hole that I had nothing to lose at that point, right? So I thought, well, I'm going to be myself. At least I'm going to feel better about it. Come what may, it won't matter. And what I didn't realize is that the, the real me and, and the vulnerable me and the more lighthearted me and the people first me was actually so much better for everyone around me. And first thing I knew, people were functioning better, producing better. And I had some of my employees said, oh, my God, I, mean, I much prefer you now than before. And the surprise was that this new tolerant, loving self of mine was just as effective with achievers that worked for me as it was with those that were struggling. And then my acceptance of the diversity in the workplace, in other words, People didn't all need to be like me. In fact, they shouldn't. And my tolerance of people's flaws, I started to understanding that all those little holes that we have in us and all the little flaws that we have are actually what make us who we are and actually can be turned into, you know, positive. So that, that's it in a nutshell is that for me, it was a cause and it was the solution to my, to my mental health issues. And, and I do not struggle with it anymore. I haven't felt any of my symptoms for many, many years now. Thank you for being, for being so open and, and so ready to tell us that it is, it is something that heals. But I think that there's a lot of discourse still around mental health that Yes, obviously, it's it's a, a condition that for a lot of people is, is chronic and, and recurs throughout our life. But I think that we have a tendency in Western medicine also to just patch things up and not really address the cause and not address it like it is something that's treatable and that we can heal completely and that, that this is, is something that's possible. And I think that it's great to remember that as well. Now, back in April 2020, Ambassador Blair gave a candid account of how she thought her own challenges with mental health would allow her to overcome more easily those that may arise with the pandemic. Now, we listened to Ambassador Blair really think ahead during our time with her. She thought about the disproportionate effect of COVID-19 on women's livelihoods and is adamant about finding ways to prevent a widespread mental health epidemic among the women affected. Can I just add, actually, just exactly what you said, Catherine, and uh, to Caitlin, to talk about the, this issue about the impact of COVID-19 that is going you know, on youth, on women that are disproportionately affected, I think, by this, by this crisis in so many ways. What worries me 
And, and I'd love to hear about you. And I, I, we deal with it in the department. We know that we're going to have a mental health crisis that is looming. Uh, people are functioning now. Parents are teaching their kids at home. Every day there's, they're going on adrenaline, but we're starting to see it now. We're seeing people fading. And one of the challenges we have, and I would think it would be the same with youth, is, is how do you get people to step forward, seek help? Because when I collapsed, no one knew what was going on. I mean, I'd, it'd been brewing for two years, but when I really lost it and I couldn't come to work anymore, people said they didn't see it coming. It's, it's, that's the problem with some of the, this, is that you hide it from people around you. And, and I'm afraid that there's a lot of young people and a lot of women that are just soldiering on and how do we see that? Because we're all isolated, we're all at home. So it's more difficult to pick up these signs in people around us so that we can help them. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That was Louise Bless speaking about the disproportionate effects of COVID-19 on women, breaking the stigma around mental health, and the power of youth to challenge the status quo. Next, our delegation had a chance to speak to Jillian Sturck. Jillian Sturck is a former Canadian ambassador and public service executive with experience in international affairs, public policy, and multilateral negotiations. Until June 2013, she was Chief Foreign Policy Officer and Assistant Deputy Minister of Strategic Policy, Global Issues, and European Affairs at the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. She served as Canada's ambassador to the Kingdom of Norway until 2009, following postings to Poland and to Canada's delegations to the United Nations Vienna, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We spoke about Canada's role as an international leader in advancing gender equality with her. Thank you so much for joining us, Ms. Sterk. Our first question is, where do you think Canada should focus more efforts to advance gender equality at home? And how do you think that Canada can act as a champion or advocate for women's rights globally? Well, let me start with the second part, because I think Canada has a long tradition of advancing women's equality, both in the multilateral context in our development assistance. It's always been an important factor in, in the way that we engage abroad. And I would just like to see us focusing more resources, I think, on uh, women's issues in the context of, of foreign policy more concrete efforts, I would say. I think development is certainly one area, thinking about uh, women's entrepreneurship and how you, you strengthen those skills, both among Canadians and abroad. And then in terms of the legal framework, which is, of course, important work that happens at the, at the CSW, looking at some of the legal issues and how you ensure protection for women's equality. For sure. Strengthening women's entrepreneurship is really important, as is entrenching women's rights and legal framework. So thank you for bringing that up. Our next question is, what are your thoughts on the intersection of gender equality with other major global issues, such as, as you mentioned, democracy, human rights, or even other areas such as climate justice or security? How can we ensure a feminist approach to these affairs? Well, let me start with the democracy piece. We've already talked a little bit about that. But I really do think it is important because the way that a nation thinks about political participation, I think also tells you something about the way they think about participation of individuals, including women. And I think when you have a sound democratic framework with legal protection, that is a, a, an important base for women's equality as well. 
it's an important starting point. And so I think the work that Canada can do in terms of, of democracy promotion and ensuring that women's equality is part of that democracy promotion is quite important. How it fits into some of the other issues. Well, I do think that women's equality runs through all of those, those questions, whether it's environment or peace and security. And I think it's thinking about what the impacts are before you start developing policy rather than trying to look at it as a, as a separate issue or as an add-on. I really think it needs to be integrated right from the, right from the beginning and thinking about what the impacts of a given policy might be. So true. I think we're starting to understand the importance of gender-based analysis within policymaking, and I completely agree about your point regarding integrating these considerations from the start. Our last question that we'd love to hear about is, could you please tell us the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, the best piece of advice I've ever received. Well, I think maybe the most important thing that I learned over time was to find my own voice. And to understand that to be effective, you didn't necessarily have to fit in a particular mold and that, in fact, you were more effective if you were yourself, true to yourself. And I think that is something that for many people takes a little bit of time to find. But thinking about how you approach issues, how you deal with people and values-based leadership, if you like which maybe sounds a bit textbooky, but actually if you, if you stop and think about what are the issues that are really important to you and how do you move those forward, I think it can be quite inspiring and quite liberating and can provide you with a good framework in which to operate. Mm-hmm. I would also say I've had wonderful mentors and the mentorship is really an important piece. And I think you know mentoring is a two-way relationship and sometimes mentors can learn as much from the people that they mentor as the other way around it's a kind of a cross intergenerational exchange which is I think so important and maybe a little bit missing right now I think you're never too young to be mentoring somebody else as well so think about the people around you all of you have very impressive experiences resumes so far you're all doing exciting interesting things that will make a difference. And so think about how you can share that with others as well. That was Jillian Sturk speaking about Canada's role in advancing gender equality, the necessity of considering the impact of policy on women, and her advice about finding your own authentic voice. To close off this episode, I asked my fellow delegates and our stakeholders, what inspires you most when advocating for gender equality? Here's what they had to say. Uh, What inspires me the most and motivates me the most is inclusion of young leaders. To see where um, women have come from and the contributions that they've uh, made. To me, we often forget how far we've come in looking to the future and attempting to continue to solve, um, you know, issues and achieving gender equality we forget how far we've come in looking at how much we have left to do Um, and i think that it's essential to remember this to give us perspective the perspective and the strength to carry on 
um, and to work towards achieving these goals, to uplift our societies to be as safe and inclusive as they can be. What inspires me most when advocating for gender equality is learning from and working alongside young women peacebuilders and feminist activists from across the world tirelessly working to bring inclusive and sustainable peace to their communities. What inspires me when advocating for gender equality is seeing the power of collective youth action and knowing that perhaps through my efforts and work, I may play a small but vital role in that. What empowers me in advocating for gender equality is the fact that it is not only good for women, it is good for all of society. Women have a catalytic effect, and if they have their place, we'll all be better for it. You have been listening to a special edition of Beyond the Headlines, presented to you by the Commission on the Status of Women Delegation of the Young Diplomats of Canada. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, or the Young Diplomats of Canada. Be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.